All right. Good evening, everyone. Let us let us begin. So, first of all, I'm going to begin by thanking the individuals who sponsored tonight's share. To thank Mrs. Engelsberg for dedicating the share in memory of her late husband Yitzchak David Ben Mer Arye, whose second yard site is this coming Thursday. Yud Gimel Er. We hope that the merit of our Talmud Torah, the Nisham will have an Aliyah and the family a Nechama. Thank Rabin Schaefer for dedicating the shir tonight on Mazel Tov, on all the engagements, weddings, babies. Baruch Hashem, wonderful to be surrounded by Simchas. Beautiful, beautiful. Halavai Hashem to continue Simchas in our personal lives, in our Mishpachas, and in our communities. And to thank Gil Goldberg for dedicating tonight's share. I don't see a dedication attached to it, so just stop for the sake of learning Torah together. Okay, with that, let, let us begin. So tonight, we have the incredible privilege to really focus on, to me, what is one of the most incredible days on the entire calendar, as Lag Omer. Part of the reason why it's so incredible is there are times in life where you know that something magnificent is unfolding, but you're not exactly sure what it is. I know that something is special. I know that something is unique. But yet, if you ask me to describe it, if you ask me to define it, it's incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. So let's contrast this. For example, when we speak about Yomim Noraim, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Aserisimi Tshuva, what's unique about those days? Tshuva. Excellent. Tshuva, judgment. Right? It's interesting. Women often answer Tshuva, men often answer judgment. Fasc- fascinating idea. Okay, a different share. In any event, right? Tshuva, judgment, right? We think about Sukkis, again, once again, we're celebrating that HaKadosh Baruch Hu took us out. We understand that He housed us. He took care of us for 40 years in the hostile environment of the desert. In Meretz Hashem, the upcoming Yom Tov of Shavuos, Haba'alim Latova, Kabbalah Satora, Sanaitic Revelation. God gave us the Torah. We are who we are because of Torah. Those are all dramatic events that I, I could put my finger on the pulse of it. I know exactly what it is that I am focusing on. Now, granted, every single Yom Tiv, right? Every single holiday, even the ones with a defined message, still have deeper levels of esoteric meaning. But at least there's something tangible, there's something concrete, there's something identifiable I can latch onto. And then we come to Lag Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer. In halacha, how does halacha describe this day? So I didn't put it on the sheet because I was looking back at previous shiurim that I've given like I've always quoted this, this same shulchanach. So this time I figure we'll do it outside. Shulchanach writes that what happens on Lag Ba'omer, right? How does Lag Ba'omer manifest itself? What do you do on Lag Ba'omer? What do you do on Lag Ba'omer? Right? So you can take a haircut, right? You can listen to music, right? We, I'm sorry? Make a wedding. We can make chasnas. We can make simchas, right? We don't say tachnun. We don't say tachnun. And the Lashon of the Shulchan Aruch is, the wording of the Shulchan Aruch is, Noah Ginbo Kitsa Simcha, or Mar Bimbo Kitsa Simcha. There's some additional Simcha. It's interesting, because a little Simcha, not, not too much, right? Not a lot of Simcha, only a little bit of Simcha. A little bit more Simcha than normal. Which in and of itself is such a strange phraseology. Either a day... You see, in Judaism, we pretty much have all days fit into one of two categories, which is what? Which are what? We're either crying or we're laughing. Right? Those are kind of the two extremes. Jews are extreme people. Baruch Hashem, that's part of the passion that we possess. We are an extreme people. So again, if it's not a day of mourning, if it's not a day of crying, then by definition, it's supposed to be a day of celebration. Obviously, there are different levels of celebration. 
So the idea to Shulchan Aruch says when it comes to the 33rd day of the Omer, ultimately again, Marbim Bo Kitsas, we, we, we excel or we amplify our Simcha a little bit. So where is the Simcha? Or what is the Simcha? What is the joy of this day? So let's first identify the two classical interpretations of this day. So the Shulchan Aruch itself explains that it was on this day that the students of Rabbi Akiva stopped dying. We know the story. The Gemara Masechus Yavamas explains that Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 pairs of students, either 24,000 students or 24,000 pairs of students, two different versions in the Gemara. And what happened? They all died. They all died. Every single one of his students died. Why, the Gemara says? They did not exercise proper interpersonal conduct one towards the other. Now, whatever that exactly means, that's not our topic for tonight. But obviously, that is a tragedy of catastrophic proportions. The death of Rabbi Akiva's students pretty much represented the obliteration of the entire Torah community. Rabbi Akiva was, tra- was, was training the future leaders of Klal Yisrael. And then in a period of just a couple of weeks, all of them perished. So the Gemara tells us, or we, have, or we have different interpretations that explain, when did they stop dying? Lagba Omer. So there's a discussion, did they stop dying on Lagba Omer? Or maybe there was just a pause on Lagba Omer? We'll go with the classic idea, they stopped dying on Lagba Omer. Now, by the way, why did they stop dying on Lagba Omer? They were all dead. In other words, there, there, was, there was no one left. There was no one left. In other words, the last student died, I guess, on La, Le, Leiv Ba'omer, right? Lamed Beis Ba'omer. So Lag Ba'omer. So Noagim Bo'kitzasimcha. So that's a classic interpretation. Therefore, again, we observe morning practices for the first 32 days of the Omer, corresponding to the death of Rabbi Akiva. Students, comes the 33rd day of the Omer. Suddenly, again, we're in a more celebratory, more celebratory mood. Okay? Classic interpretation one. Classic interpretation two is focused on a fascinating individual by the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, just, just, to, just to frame him historically, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was the Talmud Mufak, the primary disciple of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva's prize student was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, which we know then means, puts Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the aftermath of the destruction of the second base Hamikdash. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai lives during the time, or really right before the time, Hadrianic persecution. So he's living in a very tumultuous time in Jewish history. So the Zohar brings down that what happened on Lag Ba'omer, what happened on the 33rd day of the Omer? 33rd day of the Omer was the day that Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai Rashbi left this world. He left this world. You'll see why I say left this world and didn't use the word die in just a moment. But something incredibly unique happened on Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's last day. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was in possession of a repository of Torah knowledge called Torah Sanister, the hidden dimensions or esoteric dimensions of Torah, that before Rashbi were not studied by the masses and were not known by the masses. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai reveals this body of esoteric knowledge on the last day of his life. This body of esoteric knowledge comes to be known as the Zohar. The Zohar, which again, ultimately again yields the Kabbalah, the whole, the, whole, the whole world of Jewish mysticism. What we call Jewish mysticism today, what, what we also call Pnimius HaTorah. The inner dimensions of Torah all come from 
Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, not to be clear, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai didn't make it up. When we say it comes from him, it means that it was passed down generation after generation after generation. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai felt that it was time to reveal it to the masses. Now you have to understand, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was living in a time where there was an existential threat to the continuity of the Jewish people. You know, when we speak about, you know, it's, it's an incredible thing if you think about it. Think about just the times that we live in, which is really incredible. Less than, you know, less than a century ago, there was an existential threat to Klal Yisrael, the Holocaust. Yeah. Now, think about this. We're living in a time, and I'm talking about now Jews in American diaspora, where there is a dramatic spike in anti-Semitism. And it's important for us to, it's important for us you know, I just saw the Wall Street Journal was running, was running an article, I think yesterday or two days ago, that someone's sponsoring a, a campaign to, to take out a billboard in Times Square of like, like essentially the message is, stop hating Jews. Which is pathetic that, that somebody has to spend money to put a billboard like that, stop hating it. Well, okay, so we know that there's a rise in anti-Semitism. But I'll tell you something amazing. Even though there's a rise and we have to be cognizant and we all have to put in our hishtadlis to see what can be done within our communities and greater Jewish community, What's the incredible piece? Is there an existential threat to the Jewish people? No. no. There is no existential threat to the Jewish people, which is an absolutely amazing thing, that less than a century after the obliteration of six million men, women, and children, where there was an existential threat, at the end of the day, there's no longer. Kalal Yisrael is solid. Kalal Yisrael is secure. Does the rise in anti-Semitism worry us? Of course it does. Of course it does, as it should. We can't bury our head in the sand. But there is no existential threat to the Jews. It's, it's, it's just an amazing snapshot of the overwhelming rebound that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has allowed us to experience in the last century. A rebound in every single way, spiritually, materially, in an influence sense. It, it's dramatically amazing. Rabbi is worried about an existential threat to the Jewish people. So now, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? So he decides that it is finally time to go ahead and share with the masses this body of esoteric Jewish knowledge in an effort ultimately, again, to give chizuk, to strengthen the masses. So the Zara describes that on his last day in this world, he surrounded his bed, right? Around his bed was his son, Rabbi Lazar, and a number of primary disciples. He gave them each a job, and everyone was tasked with recording something different for ultimately, again, what would become the Zohar. This was the last day of Rabbi Shimon Bayochai's life. When was that Rabbi Shimon? Lagba Omer. The power of Lagba Omer is the power ultimately, again, that this was the day that Rabbi Shimon Bayochai gave the world, gave the world, gave Klal Yisrael the Zohar. The body of Jewish mysticism. An incredibly dramatic and overwhelming idea. By the way, all of the symbolisms of Lagba Omer fit into this idea. Why the bonfire in Lagba Omer? Why the bonfire? So the Zohar brings down, because on the last day of Rabbi Shomai Yochai's life, he said he ordered the sun not to set until he would finish giving over every last morsel of knowledge to those around his bed. So essentially, the light permeated the night. We give symbolic form to that with the bonfire as well. We bring light into the night, symbolizing the idea that Rabbi Shalom Bayochai 
prolonged the day into the night. So this again, this again is the classic idea, classic idea of ultimately again the power of Lagba Omer. But I want to share with you, I think, an additional layer to this and an additional level to this. And what this really focuses on is Rabbi Shon Bayochai is a person. Because Rashbi, Rashbi is the core personality ultimately of Lagba Omer. It is the, the entire, again, as much as we spoke about before, that is Rabbi Akiva, but Rashbi is the fundamental personality who solidifies and concretizes this day. In fact, again, we know the biggest thing in Lagba Omer, the biggest thing in Lagba Omer in Eretz Yisrael is the pilgrimage to Meiron. Which, unfortunately, again, now, now the entire kind of like identifying with Meiron is, is, is overwhelmed by the tragedy that Claudius Saul suffered just two years ago. Just two years ago. But the pilgrimage to Meiron, to Rabbi Rashbi's gravesite on Lagba Omer, is such a fundamental part of the Yamtiv, which tells us, which tells us that ultimately, again, Rashbi himself is a fundamental fixture. So, what I'd like to try to do tonight is focus a little bit, not as much on the story of Rosh Hashanah which is what I kind of just gave you in just a few moments, but a little bit on the man. Who was he? Because what I'd like to suggest is that maybe the reason Rosh Hashanah is the central figure of Lag Ba'omer is because it's not just about the Zohar, and it's not just about Jewish mysticism, but perhaps it's about what Rashbi represented that we really have to try to inculcate within ourselves on this sacred day. So let's begin. Take a look at number one. Sorry, that was a long introduction to the shir. Right? But take a look at number one. See, here's from the beautiful song, Bar Yochai, right? That we sing Alak Bomer. In fact, again, many of the Minog, like by, in our family, we sing Bar Yochai, actually by Avdala. By Avdala. Some sing it, some sing it by Kiddush, or not by Kiddush, by Shabbos night, by Zmiras. Others sing it, Mazi Shabbos. So Bar Yochai, in one of the stanzas, it says, Bar Yochai, I'm not going to sing it for you. Alisa Luka Pomer Kachim, Sod Torah Kitzitz Muprachim, Nase Adam Neemar Bavurecha. So this is such a profound statement. Nase, I want to focus on the last phrase. Nase Adam Neemar Bavurecha. Let us make men was said for you. Meaning what? If, what is that a reference to? If you take a look at number two, so in Sefer Bracious, what does the Torah say? Vayomer Elokim, Nase Adam. Let us make man. Na'ase Adam is the phrase of the creation of man. So what do we say in the song of Bar Yochai? Na'ase Adam ne'emar ba'avurecha. Literally, the entire creation Bar Yochai, right, Rabbi Shema Yochai, would have been enough for you. Na'ase Adam ne'emar ba'avurecha. Let us make man, Rabbi Shema Yochai, was said for you. Had just been you who was created, that would have been enough. Incredible statement. It gets better. Take a look at number three. The Gemara Masechus Makis. Rava says, Amar Rava, When a woman gives birth, she gives birth to a son, she should pray that her son should be like Hashem Bayochai. Ve'ilo, and if your son is not going to be like Hashem Bayochai, lo tailored, better not to have him. Wow. Right? That's a doozy, right? That's right. Now, obviously, it can't be literal. Can't be literal. Not everybody can be Hashem Bayochai. But rather, it's to make a point, right? What's to make a point? You know, it's interesting. I mentioned this before. The, the Shulchan Aruch brings down, I think I mentioned this before. <clears throat> Shulchan Aruch brings down that if a Jewish mother can't nurse her child, 
it's ideal to find a Jewish wet nurse. A Jewish wet nurse. Why? Why? So the Shukhan Arach brings, brings a proof from Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. Because what happened with Moshe, right? Remember again, Moshe Rabbeinu was set, set on the Nile by his parents. Baspar, the daughter of Pharaoh, finds him. She takes him in. Moshe won't nurse from a non-Jewish woman. He won't nurse from her. Only will nurse, right? So what happens? Finally, so remember again, Basparo hires Yocheved, Moshe's mother, to be the wet nurse. Why, the Gemara says, why wouldn't Moshe, why would Moshe only nurse from a Jewish mother? So the Gemara says, because the mouth that was one day going to speak with Hashem ultimately should nurse from a Jewish mother. Nurse from a Jewish mother. So the Shulchan Aruch says, therefore, the halacha is that if a Jewish baby can't nurse from his own mother, best to get a Jewish wet nurse. So the Satmar of Zechah says, what? I mean, it's not an exact quote, but like, what? I don't understand. That's Moshe Rabbeinu, right? Moshe Rabbeinu was going to speak face to face, face to face to God. The Shukhlach is talking about for everyone else. So Satmar says, you see from here what? That you have to raise your child as if he or she could be a Moshe Rabbeinu. That you have to raise a child that the sky is the limit. You have to raise a child that if they put their mind to something, they could truly accomplish it. There's no such thing as telling a child, you can't, I don't mean in the realm of discipline, I mean in the realm of accomplishment. You can't do this, you can't do this. Every child has to be treated as if they become a Rosh become Rabbeinu. But I think what Rav is saying is, no. Every child, ideally, should be a Rosh Rabbeinu. Not a Moshe Rabbeinu. Maybe Moshe Rabbeinu is too much of a different kind of personality. Moshe Rabbeinu is such a dramatic and complex personality within Cloud Yisrael. Lo kam ki Moshe, the Torah itself says, there never was a Moshe before Moshe, and there'll never be another Moshe Rabbeinu. But I'm sure my Yochai, that says Rava, every mother should raise her child to be a Rav Shem And if your kid's not going to be a Rav Shem Better not to have them. Okay, we don't have to take it literally, but let's take the message. The message is that I should try to train my child to be Rishon Bayochai. So again, what do you take from all of this? What do you take from all of this? The Rishon Bayochai represents the paradigmatic Jew. The Rishon Bayochai represents anything and everything we want to be and we aspire to be in life. So now that we know that, now remember, what we don't know is, what we don't know is what? Why? What's so unique, right? Baruch Hashem, if you think about it, our people, we are blessed with so many incredible ancestors, patriarchs and matriarchs. And I don't just mean the Avos Animos. I mean patriarchs and matriarchs from previous generations. So many great people throughout the ages. But yet the Gemara seems to be fixated that a child, I should try, I should try to make myself like Rishon Bayochai. If there was only one human being created in the entire world, Rishon Bayochai, all of creation would have been enough. So what's so special about this person? So I want to show you three different qualities of Rishon Bayochai. Take a look at number four. So we're going to get a little bit technical for just a moment. So the Gemara Masech Shabbat says, Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Shimon says, by the way, Rabbi Shimon is Rabbi Shimon Bayochai, says, he says, Gorer Adam Mita Kisei Visafsal, Ubilbachle is Kaving Lasos Haritz. Okay, let me tell you the technical part. Right? There's a halacha on Shabbos. Right? Or I should say, there are Lamatas Malchus, 39 malachas on Shabbos. 39 forbidding categories of labor that you cannot do on Shabbos. One of the things that you can't do is planting. Planting. 
Well, what's the first thing you have to do for planting? If you want to plant, what's the first thing you have to do? You have to make a furrow. Right? In other words, you have to go ahead and till the soil, right? You have to make a furrow, right? You want to plant something in the ground. You don't just drop it down. You have to... So imagine the following situation. I want to drag a chair or a bench, right? From one corner of my yard to the other corner of my yard. So am I allowed to do that on Shabbos? So Shemayochai says, it depends. Now, again, we're going to get technical just for a moment. If it's definitely going to create, ultimately again, if it's definitely (coughs) going to create a furrow, you're not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to do it. What if it potentially will create a furrow? So Rabbi Shem Bayochai says, it's mutter. It's permitted. As long as you don't have kavana. As long as you don't have intention to go ahead and create the furrow, it is going to be permitted. This is what's called in halacha, a davar she'eno miskaving. Davar she'eno miskaving means I create a reality on Shabbos, but I didn't have the intention to do it. So if you go ahead and you make that furrow, but it wasn't your intention to do it, Rishon Bayochai says, it's permitted. It's permitted. A davar she'eno miskaving. Good. That's number one. Number two, or source number five. Rishimani, da'amar, so here's another example. What happens if you do a malacha, but not for its intended purpose? Right? Every malacha, every prohibited act of labor on Shabbos, ultimately, again, has a specific purpose. What if you do the malacha, but not for its intended purpose? A malacha she'ina tzricha legufa. So again, whatever, you can, you can fill in the blank. You know, I, I go ahead and, uh, you know, I, 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 I always go down. I have a metal pot. Not our types of treated metal. I have a metal pot. Right? So the way before, we, before they had treated metals, the way you would go ahead and solidify a metal pot is how? You'd boil something up in it. You'd boil something up in it. So imagine I take a pot of water and I boil it on Shabbos. Is that permitted or prohibited? It's not a trick question. Normally, it's not permitted, right? It's prohibited. Why? Because what's boiling water? What's boiling water? Bishel. Cooking. But let's say now my intention is not to cook. My intention is to solidify the pot. That's called malacha shenitzricha Right? An unnecessary malacha. That's not the best example, but just illustrative. Rishon Bayochai says, a malacha shenitzricha if you're doing a malacha, but not for its intended purpose, ultimately the act is permitted. So two alachos. A davrashenum is kaving. If you do a malacha without kavana, it's permitted. And number two, if you do a malacha not for its intended purpose, it's permitted. Author of both of these halachas, Rabbi Shimon Bayochai. What's the kam denominator behind these two statements? What's the kam denominator? Shabbos, true, right? What else? Intention. Intention. See what Rashbi is trying to highlight to us is that in order to lead a successful life, you have to live with intentionality. You see, so often what ends up happening in life is we live life reactively, right? Something happens, and I respond, and I do. And then what happens after the response? What happens after the response? I wait for the next event, and then I'll respond again. And I go, and by the way, I could be great at responding. 
But I go from response to response to response to response, which could be very meaningful and very good on a variety of levels, especially if I'm responding in a good way, but I'm not necessarily accomplishing the things that I truly want to accomplish in life. In order to lead a meaningful life, in order to lead a fulfilling life, in order to accomplish something of significance, a person must live with intentionality. Who do I want to be? What do I want to do? How do I want to do it? What do I want to accomplish? We speak about this so often. What is my life plan? You know, if you look, the the metaphor that's often given for life is like a sea or an ocean, right? So there are two ways. There are two ways in which you could go ahead and navigate, or I should say, make your way through the ocean, right? You You could be rudderless, or you could be with a rudder, or like with an oar, right? So what happens? You get on a boat in the ocean, and then what happens? If you have no, if you have no oar, so what happens? What happens? No oar, no motor. Wherever the waves take you, right? Wherever the currents take you. So today you're going here, and today you're going there. And again, could it be that you end up somewhere significant? Is it possible? Of definitely possible. Is it probable? No. Chances are you just, you're going to end up somewhere. You're going to end up somewhere, but not really where you want it to be, or you could have been, or you should have been. But if you choose to navigate the sea of life with your oar of intentionality, it doesn't necessarily mean you're for sure going to get where you want to get to. But number one, you'll get somewhere. You'll get somewhere, and you definitely have a heightened probability of getting where you want to get. Live life with a plan. Live life with a vision. Or according to Rashbi, live life with kavana with intent, with intentionality. And again, I sound so simple, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, I'm talking to myself, don't do life with intentionality. Most days are putting out fires. Most days are just reacting to whatever the latest crisis is. Now, does life always have some element of crisis management? Of course, but life can't be all crisis management. And if we're even more honest with ourselves, a lot of honesty for one night, I know. Right? But if we're even more honest with ourselves, we recognize the reason why life is crisis to crisis to crisis is because if I'm honest, when there is no crisis, I have nothing to do. Right? Why? Because there's no plan. There's no plan. Imagine tomorrow if you had a day without crisis. Imagine if you had a day without crisis. What would you do? Okay, so besides, you know, sitting down with a drink with an umbrella in it, right? You know, ours, right, right? What, 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 right? what, what would you do? If you had a whole day that you were, imagine, the emotional, the Baskal came down and told you, told you Wednesday, it's no crisis Wednesday. No crisis Wednesday. The day is yours to maximize. The day is yours to maximize. You know what the scary reality is? Most of us, wouldn't know what to do with it. We would not, oh, you can sleep a little later, right? I I could sit down, I could read the paper, I could take a walk. Those are all great things, right? It's good, it's definitely good to have some time for relaxation. But what would you do? What would you do? How would you live? What's the plan? And that's Rashbi. Rashbi says, without kavana, it's nothing. A malacha shein there's no kavana, it's not a malacha. A davr shein miskaven, there's no kavana, it's not a malacha. If it doesn't have kavana, it's not life. 
That's lesson number one from Rashbi. Live life with intentionality. Next lesson. Take a look at number six. So, of course, the other dramatic lesson from Rashbi, the dramatic story, is, you know, I, let me give you the background to this. We, everyone, know, you know this story. The story is that uh, Rashbi, Rabbi Shem Yochai, spoke out against the Romans. As a result of that, he was forced into hiding. He was forced into hiding. And he hid out with his son, Rabbi Lazar, for a, for a protracted period of time. Actually, again, we know, right? the, the cave of Rabbi Shem Yochai is in Pekin. Zimpikian, right in the north of Eretz Yisrael. So you can go, you can go to the cave, go to the cave of Rashbi, where they say, they say, they have Masar that this is the cave because they know that there's a carob tree there, right? There's a, there's a spring that runs by it. So they think that this is the cave of Rashbi and Pikian. So Rashbi is hiding out in the cave. Look at number six. So they went and they went ahead and they hid in the cave. The Gemara says again, a miracle occurred. Hashem gave them a carob tree. Hashem gave them water. So skip down a little bit. Skip down. Skip down uh, four lines. Isvu isvu They spent twelve years in the cave. Twelve years hiding out in the cave. Now, by the way, I just want to point out th- this was this was a really difficult life, right? All they had was carob and water, and the Gemara says they had one set of sort of clothing. So the Gemara says they had to also remember again they they they, they, they had very limited resources. But this is what, but they had each other, and father and son had each other, and they had Torah. And for 12 years, for 12 years, ultimately, again, this is how they existed. I'm now, I'm now by the number six, four lines down the middle of the line, right after the second period. The prophet Elio comes along. He stood at the entranceway of the cave. Amar, man lode lebar yochai demis kesar, ubato gzerase. Who's going to so say, said, essentially, Eliyahu said, the Caesar is dead. And the way it worked in ancient Rome is that once the Caesar died, all death sentences were commuted. So there was a death sentence on Rishon Bayochai's head because he spoke it against the Romans. Now the Caesar is dead. Essentially, Rishon Bayochai, you're free to go. Now watch this. Chazu, so, so they go out. So, so again, so Rabbi Shon Bayochai, Rabbi Shon Bayochai, right, Rashbi and his son of Elazar, they leave the cave. They saw people farming. They saw people farming. So ultimately, again, they couldn't... You have to understand something. For 12 years, they led an intensely spiritual existence. Intensely spiritual existence. Sometimes when you lead an intense spiritual existence for a protracted amount of time, what's the hardest thing to do? What's the hardest thing to do? is to adapt to regular life. You know where you see this? Seminary girls. Right? Again, right? You come back after a year and mamish, like next Rebbe's in Kanievsky, right? It's incredible. Now you have to come home. Suddenly again, I don't know if we could eat this. I don't know if we could socialize with this. I don't know. You can't really read this, right? Because again, it happens. It happens to the boys. It happens to everyone. You have moments of intense spirituality, which are incredible. And then you come back, quote unquote, to the We'll call it, I'm not going to call it the real world because the real world is the world of Ruchnius. You come back, we'll call it to the regular world and it's hard to find your place. But you find this, by the way, I just want to point out, you find this a lot of times in life. You find this also, you find this also after a person endures loss, right? Often people get up from Shiva, right? The day you get up from Shiva is the strangest day in the world, Strangest day in the world. So in the morning, I'm an aval. I'm sitting on the ground, right? No shoes, torn clothing. Then I get up, right? Everyone goes home. Everyone goes home. So 
I'm here, and somehow, like, I guess, what? I, I go to work, I go back out, I go, I go to the grocery. Like, it's the strangest thing in the world. To come, once you've had a dramatic experience, to figure out how to land back in the regular, which, by the way, as an aside, just as an aside, you should just know, the time to be there for people when they have suffered loss is dafka when they get up from Shiva. You see, during Shiva, the world is there. The world is there. But I can't tell you how many times I've seen this. The profound sense of loneliness and isolation that people experience when Shiva is over. Because what, what, what do people often assume? Oh, Shiva's over. Right? So we're good, right? right? In other words, you, you did your thing, right? You mourned your loss. Now life resumes back. And again, is part of that true? Yeah, part of, part of the dynamic of after Shiva is you have to get back into the world. But that feeling of isolation and not knowing what your place is and not knowing how to integrate and the whole world is normal, but yet my entire life has been turned upside down. Just as an aside, just as an aside, if you know someone who's always gone through loss, the time to really be there is when everyone else kind of steps back. In any event, they have difficulty reintegrating into the world. They have difficulty reintegrating. So they see people farming. Remember, for the last 12 years, they've been sitting, learning, eating boxer and drinking water. Right? That, that's what they've been doing. A totally spiritual life with bare minimum physical sustenance. So they see people forsaking spirituality for the sake of a livelihood and they can't deal with it. They, they, they can't absorb it. So what happens? Wherever they looked, they destroyed. Whether this is literal or metaphorical, the point is they, they could not exist in this world. The heavenly voice came out and said, go back to the cave. Go back to the cave. So they are this time, see, the first time they went to the cave, they went to hide. The second time they go back to the cave, ultimately again, is as a punishment from Hashem. Hashem says, go back into the cave. I didn't bring you out to destroy, go back into the cave. They go back into the cave, ultimately for another 12 months, for another year. After a year, last line in number six, Yatza Sabbas called the Amra, Come out of the cave. Come out of the cave. By the way, just as an aside, so we have so what was the day they came out of the cave? Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer. Just another symbolism of Lagba Omer as well. The day that Rashbi came out of the cave. So they come out of the cave. Fine. Now what happens? Take two. Take a look at number seven. Nafku. So ultimately, again, they come out of the cave. Rebbe Lazar, the son, was still all fired up that people are forsaking spirituality for the sake of material gain. So literally everywhere he looked, he destroyed. But whatever he destroyed, his father, Rabbi Shem Bayochai, built back up. In other words, let's understand it metaphorically. And the, the, idea, the idea being over is one of, the, one of the big differences between youth and adulthood is that you know, youth often is, I so, which is part of the beauty of youth, incredibly, overwhelmingly, and sometimes unrealistically idealistic. Right? So Belazar comes out and he still can't understand why people would forsake spirituality ultimately again for material gain. And the father understands people are capable of different things. People are capable of different things. Amar lo b'ni died the olam aniva'ata. And the Belazar, Rabbi Shimon, turns to his son and he says, listen, calm down. All the world needs is you and me. All the world needs is you and me. Let everyone else do their thing. 
Let them do their work. Let them plow the ground. Let them do what they need to do in order to make their parnasa, to make their livelihood, to be part of society. You and I, ourselves, could shoulder the load of spirituality for the entire world. An incredible, incredible statement. We'll come back in just a moment. So what happens? They're standing there. Bahadi Panya Dimali Shabbos. It happened to be Erev Shabbos. Friday afternoon. Chazwa who Sabah the Havinaki Tremani Madani Asa. They saw a man who was carrying two bundles of myrtle branches. He was running. He was late for Shabbos. See, being late for Shabbos is not a new dynamic. Right? It has existed. It's as old as Klal Yisrael is. So this old guy, this old guy is running with two bundles of myrtle branches and it's late on Erev Shabbos. Amrulay, Hani Lamalach. They asked the guy, why do you need the bundles of myrtle branches? Amrulay, the covered Shabbos. The covered Shabbos. I'm bringing home the myrtle branches, you know, by the, by the Svardim, by the Svardim, this is a big thing, by the Hasidim as well, to smell Hadassim before Shabbos, to make the brach of Bore Atzi or Bore Isve Bisamim, because again, remember, the sense of smell is the one sense that is most connected to the soul. And the reason for that is because, remember, how did Hashem create man? Vayipach Ba'apav, Hashem blew life into the nostrils of Adam. And as such, the sense of that's why, again, on Matzei Shabbos, when the soul is sad about the departure of Shabbos, how do we enliven the soul? Besamim, scent. So before Shabbos, many have the custom as well to smell Hadassim, to wake up the soul through scent before Shabbos. So this guy's running around with Hadassim. The covet Shabbos, the tiski the chavachas, asking, do I need two bundles? Why can't you just use one bundle? Chad keneged zacher, the chad keneged shamar. This is beautiful. We know that there are two different, two different concepts by Shabbos. What we'll call Zohar or Kavit Shabbos and Shmir Shabbos. So Zohar, Zohar refers to the positive commandments of Shabbos, right? For example, Kiddush, right? Oneg Shabbos, enjoying Shabbos, right? Shamar refers to the prohibitions. So he says, I have two bundles of Hadassim, one for Zohar and one for Shamar. I'm really liberated. So they're having this conversation with this old man. Rabbi Shron Bayachai turns to his son of Elazar. Chazi kama chavivin mitzvos Yisrael. See how much Klal Yisrael loves mitzvos. Yasiv datayu. And with that, with that, Rabbi Lazar was satisfied. So this is a dramatic Gemara, because I think that there are two incredible lessons that come out from this. Number one, number one, let's start with the end of the Gemara first. You see, there is no mitzvah to bring bundles of, of myrtle branches to your house on Shabbos. Right? There's no, Rabbi Shema Yachai says, see how much Kalal Yisrael loves mitzvahs, they're bringing myrtle branches. There's no mitzvah to bring, it's nice, it's nice. And even if there is a mitzvah to bring myrtle branches, there's no such thing as one bundle for Zohar, one bundle for Shamar. So what was Rashbi trying to teach his son? See the good in people. See the good in people. It is always easy to point out the deficits, the deficiencies, the handicaps, the negative things in another person. And sometimes the positive is not as apparent. You see, I just want to point something out. Imagine you're right, you're watching this story. You're watching this story. You see this old guy running with two bundles of myrtle branches, and let's make it even better. It's within the 18 minutes. What's the narrative you attach to that story? What's the narrative you would attach to that story? Hey, come on, man, get it together, right? Why are you, you don't have enough respect for Shabbos? Okay, you don't have to be a chazos lady, but at the end of the day, come on, why, why? Like, what, what a lack of appreciation. By the way, it, so it's true, right? So in other words, this is just a, 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 an aside. 
a person shouldn't be dipping into the 18 minutes. A person should be ready for Shabbos Kodesh way before the 18 minutes. And a person has to structure their lives in a way that going into Shabbos is benachas. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's so easy. He's a man. Right? That's why he's saying that. I, I have a wife who does this. So I can tell you that it's done. It's absolutely done. But again, you could look at this narrative. You could look at this narrative and you could easily go ahead and say, this is so pathetic. Why can't you structure your day in a better way? And by the way, would that be a legitimate narrative? Would it be a legitimate narrative? Could be, right? You don't know what this guy was doing the whole Friday, right? Maybe he decided to sleep till one o'clock in the afternoon. He was just getting exact together now. So maybe he was late because he was derelict in his responsibilities. It's absolutely possible. But what Rashbi was trying to teach his son is that in life, there's always a choice of the narrative you ascribe to the actions of others. There's always a choice. It could always be something positive or it could be something negative. And you have to choose what kind of person you want to be. Do you want to be the negative, negative narrative guy or the positive narrative guy? You know, we have a concept in halacha. And by the way, this is what well, well, we'll come to about in just a second. We have a concept of havidanis kala adam lakaf sechos. Judge every person favorably. Judge every person favorably, right? See, so you know, you know what the, right? What's the classic example of this? Classic example, judging someone favorably. Maybe it's not such a classic example, right? You see someone walking into a non-kosher restaurant, right? So again, you could say they're having dinner, or you could say using the restroom, getting a bottle of water. That's a choice. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says, well, what happens if you see someone doing something and it's absolutely unequivocally wrong. Like, in other words, there's not a question about it. How are you down like How do you give someone the benefit of the doubt in that situation? And the Rebbe says, you're right. Sometimes, even if you can't give the benefit of the doubt to that situation, what you do is you say, you know what? I'm not going to define that person by the one negative thing they're doing now. There's got to be a whole picture attached to that person. You catch any of us at one bad moment, that doesn't define the totality of who and what we are. We are a composite of a variety and a, and a plethora of life decisions. And most of them, Baruch Hashem, are good. So Rabbi Nachman says, judge the whole person, not just one event. What Rashbi was trying to teach his son was, you could look at this old guy running with two bundles of myrtle branches in the 18 minutes of Shabbos, and you could say, bum, derelict, irresponsible, unorganized, not reverent enough toward Shabbos. Or you could say, wow. That's beautiful. One bundle for Zachar, one bundle for Shammar. Incredible. And Ashbi tries to teach his son, see the good in people. See the good. But there's one more lesson. And that lesson I meant to underline this is on the first line of number seven. Bini dali ola maniva'ata. My son, it's enough for the world, for me and you. Now, this is an interesting statement in general. Because in Judaism, we don't generally believe that one person or two people, right, could carry the entire world, right? In other words, everybody's got to put in their effort. So what does Rashbi say when he, when, mean when he says, olam Perhaps what Rashbi was saying is like this. One of the greatest challenges we have on, on, the interpersonal, on, on an interpersonal level is the creation of high expectations for other people. Right? And this happens all the time. We create expectations. And you, 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 you can plug this into whatever life relationship you want. 
right? I have these expectations for my spouse, for my child, for my friend, for my rabbi, for my rabbi, for this. We all have expectations. And then almost what inevitably happens in every single relationship with which you create expectations? People, the person in your relationship does not meet those expectations. Human nature. And how do you feel when someone who you care about doesn't meet the expectations? How do you feel? Angry, disappointed, disillusioned, right? I'm upset you didn't come through. Meanwhile, do we ever take a step back to ask ourselves, are the expectations realistic? Are the expectations appropriate? Are the expectations, do they really fit this person? And so often in life, without even realizing it, we set unrealistic expectations for people. And if you said it's no different, imagine you told the three-year-old, listen, no dinner until you solve this calculus problem, right? And when they can't do it, I'm like, oh boy, what a failure. What, what a fa-. Anyone who would look at that would say, that's ridiculous. There's no way that child could meet that expectation. But yet we do this so often in life without even realizing. We set the expectation for other people all the way up all the way up, never even asking ourselves, is that a realistic expectation or is it an appropriate expectation? And then when they don't meet that expectation, often because they could have never met that expectation, it fuels such a sense again of disappointment, of anger, of frustration, of resentment, because I feel like the person who I care about has failed me. See, when Rashbi and Rabbi Lazar first come out of the cave, what was happening? Right? What standard were they holding the world to? What standard were they holding the world to? Their standard. Right? We just lived 12 years of bare material sustenance and total immersion in spirituality. And if that's our standard, we hold you, the world, to the same standard as well. Hashbarak says, get back in the cave. Get back in the cave. Right? Even the Ribbono Shal Olam sends his children into timeout, right? Get back in the cave. Go to your room. Get back in the cave. And what was the whole point of get back in the cave? What was the whole point? What was, why, why? Readjust your expectations of other people. And herein lies an incredible and dramatic idea. You should have the highest expectations of yourself and have very low expectations of other people. Now, I know that sounds a little bit morose, When I say low expectations of other people, that doesn't mean that I don't think they're capable. But you can't go through life always expecting things from other people. The only person in the world that you should expect something from is you. And when it comes to your own expectations, set the bar ridiculously high. Now, okay, not, not ridiculously, ridiculously high, just one ridiculous, right? In other words, set, set, not, not twice, because otherwise, again, you become frustrated yourself. But high enough, high enough that you have to push yourself. But don't create unrealistic expectations for other people. That's what Rabbi Shemar was saying, B'ni, dali olam va'ata. It's enough if you and I hold each other to the expectations we have. We don't need to hold the world to the rest of it. Imagine for a moment what our marriages would look like, what our relationship with our children and our parents, what our relationship with leadership, what our relationship with community would look like if we didn't hold every single person to the highest standard. I hold myself to the highest standard. 
When it comes to others, they got to figure their stuff out on their own. I'm not, it's not my job to hold anyone else's feet to the fire. The only feet that hold to the fire are my own. It's enough for you and I. The rest of the world, you don't have to. So two incredible lessons kind of sandwiched in one Gemara. Number one, number one, see the good in other people. Anytime you look at a person, you can always describe one of two narratives, a negative one or a positive one. Choose the positive one. Number two, don't set unrealistic expectations for other people. Last lesson, then we'll bring it all together. Take a look at number eight. This is all a continuation of the same Gemara. All a continuation. So the Gemara says as follows. So watch this. Number eight is a continuation. So who heard? Who heard that Rashbi and Rabbi Lazar were out of the cave? None other than Rabbi Shom Bayochai's son-in-law, Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yar. So Pinchas Ben Yar hears that his father-in-law is out of the cave. So he goes to greet him. Aili lebeibane. So what happened? So Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yar said to his father-in-law, "Let's go to the bathhouse." Remember again, he didn't have access to real bathing facilities, right? He had to be careful. They had to hide in the cave also. So the first thing he says to his father-in-law is, let's go to the bathhouse so you could, you could clean yourself properly. So watch this. As Rabbi Shomachah was taking off his clothes, Chaza to have a pile bigufe. Pinchas ben sees that Rashbi's skin is cracked. It's cracked. Right, all of those years, all of those years living in privation in, in the in the cave, his skin was cracked. So what happened? Hava kabochi. Pinchas Benyar began to cry. He was sad about the state, a state that he saw his saintly father Rabbi Shmuel Yochai in. The Gemara says the kanasu dimas ene the kamtsavchale. So what happens? Pinchas Benyar's tears fell on to his father and to Rabbi Shmuel Yochai's skin. Rabbi Shimon Ba'yochai winced, right? He winced because obviously the tears, the salt water, ultimately caused him pain in the, in the cracked skin. Amr Lord, Rabbi Shimon Ben Yar says, Oy li shir asicha mekach. So Rabbi Shimon Ben says to his father, says to Rabbi Ba'yochai, I'm so sad that I have to see you like this. In other words, I'm so sad to see how much you've suffered over the last number of years. I'm sad. Amr Lord, Rabbi Shimon Ba'yochai says, you have it all wrong. You have it all wrong. Rashrecha shiri isani bekach. Praiseworthy are you that you saw me like this. Sheomali lora isi bekach, lomatsisi bekach. For not for these cracks, I would not be who I am. Were it not for the cracks, I would not be who I am. And Hashem Bayachai was saying something dramatically amazing. Don't be afraid to suffer. Now, I know, again, it sounds like a very strange statement. Don't be afraid to suffer. You know, we live in a society that is so, what's the right word? We are comfort-centric and discomfort-averse. We don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like to be uncomfortable. That's it. So whatever I need, and, and again, and the notion of something being uncomfortable, in other words, I'm uncomfortable with the concept of being uncomfortable, right? Let alone being uncomfortable itself. Ashbi says suffering is part of life. Now again, there are different levels of suffering. There's physical suffering, 
There's emotional suffering. There's prolonged suffering. There's episodic suffering. There's personal suffering. There's communal suffering. There's all different levels of suffering. But a person has to accept the fact that suffering is part of the human condition. And don't be afraid of it. You ever encounter someone who is going through an incredibly dramatic or traumatic time? And often again, and if anyone has ever lived through a difficult or dramatic or traumatic time, so what are the first words that often come out of a person's mouth? Why me? Okay, that's even more theological, right? right? On a reactionary level, I can't do this. I can't do this. And something amazing happens, which is, they do it. They do it. You see, it's incredible that the way often we approach suffering is, I cannot, I can't scale this mountain. This, uh, this, uh, this is the end for me. This is the end for me. Rashbi says, no, it's not. No, it's not. Don't be afraid to suffer. Don't be afraid of adversity. Don't be afraid of pain. Don't be afraid of heartbreak. Don't be afraid of sadness. It's part of the fabric of the human condition. And no matter how fast you run, you will never outrun it. It's only a question of how often and how intense. But it is part of our lives. But why is it part of our lives? Because at the end of the day, and here's the Iker Nakuda, at the end of the day, we become who we are, not despite our suffering, but because of our suffering. In other words, greatness in life comes from all of the things you have to live through, the ups and the downs. And without the adversity, you cannot become the best version of you. Shai Pinchas ben Yair sees the cracks in his father-in-law's skin that represent years and years of physical neglect. And he says, I'm so heartbroken to see this. And Rashbi says, heartbroken. I wouldn't be me if my skin was soft. I wouldn't be me if I was delicate and taken care of. I wouldn't be me if life was easy. I'm only me because of the cracks in the skin. Lesson number three is don't be afraid to suffer. So often we go through life, right? And you, you, you know what's interesting is the Ariza brings down, this I definitely mentioned before, the Ariza brings down, he says, why is it that at Simchas, right? At incredible moments of joy, we cry. We cry, which is so strange because crying is often associated with sadness. And there is also because deep down the Neshama knows that as wonderful and as beautiful as the Simcha's destroy is, I can't hold on to it. I can't hold on to it. It's going to leave. It's going right? to be over. And maybe something tragic will go ahead and replace it. Imagine if our approach to life was, bring it on. Right? I, I'm not looking for adversity. Don't get me wrong. Right? I'm not looking for tragedy. I'm, I'm not looking for it. But if that's the plan, I'm ready for it. If that's the, I don't know how I'm going to be ready for it, but I don't have to be scared. I don't have to be scared of adversity. I don't have to be scared of difficulty. I don't have to be scared of tragedy. I'm sad about those things, but I don't have to be sad because if chas v'shalom, they do happen, which they do to all of us in some way, shape, or form, those are the cracks that make me who I am. Don't be afraid to suffer. So if we bring this all together, it turns out that Rashbi teaches us these three dramatic lessons. Number one, number one, live life with intentionality. 
Number two, see the good narrative in people. We'll call, well, we'll call it four lessons. Number three, don't create unrealistic expectations of people. Only, top, only high expectations you should make are the ones you make of yourself. And number four, number four, number four, don't be afraid to suffer. Don't be afraid of adversity. Whatever you have to face, you got it. And whatever cracks in the skin you get as a result of your adversity, those will make you truly the best version of yourself. And now we come full circle. So what's the power of Lagba Omer? What's the power of Lagba Omer? You have to understand something. Lagba Omer is not only the yard site of Rabbi Mishra Bayochai, but remember again, it's also his birthday. It's his birthday. And it's also the day he left the cave. And the day, the second time, and the day Rashbi left the cave was the day he came out with all four of these lessons. Live life with intentionality. See the good narrative in every person. Don't create unrealistic expectations. And don't be afraid to suffer. This is the avoda of Lagba Omer. To inculcate within ourselves these four dramatic life lessons. And now you can go full circle even more. Why did Rava say, if you're going to give birth to a son, he better be a Rashbi, or better not to give birth? Because what is it? You ever wonder to yourself, what qualities does the ideal human being possess? What qualities? What, right, what, what are the ideal qualities? The ideal qualities are what we'll call Rashbi qualities. I'll repeat it again. I'm sorry for being repetitive. It's just so amazing, right? To Rashbi qualities. Live life with kavana. Don't let life live you. You live life. Don't go ahead and be the rudderless boat on the ocean, but you chart your way. See the good in people. Choose the positive narrative. Stop making unrealistic expectations of those who you love and those who you care about. And don't be afraid of the cracks on your skin. Don't be afraid to suffer. Those, the four qualities, the Rashbi qualities, are the qualities necessary for successful living. So Allah Ba Omer, which is the birthday of Rabbi Shemayachai, the yard of the Rishon the day in which he left the cave, it's the day for us to think about those qualities and to figure out how to inculcate them within ourselves. And the same way that Rashbi brought so much light into the world, right? He brought so much light. Remember, like we said before, the day that he died, he would not allow the sun to set. There are only two people in the history of man who did not allow the sun to set. One was Yoshua, the second was Rishon Bayochai. Rishon Bayochai was the guy who said, you could bring light even into the darkness. That's what we try to do also, to bring light into the darkness, that darkness of life. And the simple way is simple, nothing simple. But the way we do that ultimately is to try to become our own version we should be Zohar Hashem to hopefully learn these dramatic lessons. We should be Zohar Hashem to emulate this sacred personality, to inculcate his ideals in ourselves and live our lives by these four guiding lights. And if we are privileged to do so, then we too will introduce beautiful, dramatic, and holy light into our lives and into the world. Shabbat everyone.